Wowie, wowie, wow. Welcome back from across all of time, space, and dimension, wavelengths, and frequencies to the Mental Pop Podcast brought to you by Primordial Productions. My name is Mad, and I'll be your host today. And though probably only eight people are listening in across the great expanse of the incomprehensible depths of eternity itself, I hope this episode finds you well, as it's been nearly a month since the last episode, and I meant to put out a new podcast a little bit sooner than this, uh, but I've been busy uh, with a new job uh, that kind of kicks my ass physically on a daily basis, as well as I've been reorganizing and pricing some 10,000 comic books in my collection, uh, which takes up a lot of time and attention. Especially when you have 22 long boxes full of issues and not a lot of space to work with. Yes, I've got issues. So yeah, I've been busy with a new job and organizing my rather sizable comic book collection. As well as my bookshelves, uh, which holds about a thousand assorted titles. Some of which we will be discussing today. Yes, that is the crux of the episode today. As a little bit later, we're going to discuss over 22 books in the year 2022 that have really impacted me on some level over the course of my life, and in particular non-fiction books, uh, works that we would consider to be more for research purposes than merely for enjoyment. I'll read the hell out of authors such as Stephen King and Clive Barker and Dean Koontz and Robert McCammon and Bentley Little and many other fiction writers that I love. And I've read a series like The Dresden Files by Jim Butcher, which consists of 19 books on more than one occasion. But that's not going to be the focus of today's episode. Yet rather, 22 plus must-read books that I consider to have changed my perspective on the world. And that really spoke to me, not only as so-called conspiracy theories, but as a human being. And even on some deep philosophical levels. Books of research and specific topics that really resonated with me on a whole nutta level. This episode is for prolific readers researchers, and truth seekers, as well as just for book collectors in general. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, AMORC, otherwise known as the Ancient and Mystical Order of the Rosy Cross, or the U.S. Branch of the Rosicrucian Order, is celebrating its 100-year centennial celebration this year. And one of the very cool things uh, that they've recently done is make 100 years worth of issues, which is about a 1,000 issues, of the Rosicrucian Digest available for free to members and non-members alike just by visiting www.rosicrucian.org and then clicking on the text button, uh, which will take viewers not only to the new Rosicrucian Digest archive of 1,000 free issues, uh, but you can also check out dozens of free full-length books there as well, uh, dedicated to mysticism, spirituality, mythology, alchemy, symbolism, and all topics of the esoteric and personal development. And I know some of the people listening today might feel a deep distrust towards groups like the Rosicrucian Order, and it's healthy to have some distrust. And I myself definitely don't believe or follow all of the teachings of the Rosicrucian Order, or AMORC. However, Rosicrucianism is something I've studied fairly in depth over the past 20 years, and particularly over the past year as I became an official member of AMORC. And I can honestly say that while I do not endorse their teachings and beliefs on whole, I absolutely don't think that the Rosicrucian Order is some evil and shadowy cabal dedicated to depopulation and 
Satanism and blood rituals and the New World Order. In my mind, what a group such as AMORC does in particular is provide people with tools of which they can use or ignore according to their own beliefs and intuitions. It's an all-inclusive organization, and as stated, it is being transparent in uh, now providing thousands of issues for free to anybody who wants to view them, as well as dozens of free books uh, to anyone who is curious and has internet access. Once again, this is not really an endorsement of Rosicrucianism on my part, because it's not for everybody. Uh, but I honestly think that at its heart, it's in the right place, uh, which is the heart of the Rosy Cross. And that is an organization that is truly open to all types of people and belief systems, from Christian, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Wiccan, Pagan, and even Atheist. And is tolerant and accepting of all genders and sexualities and personal viewpoints. For me, the biggest takeaway thus far has been, make of it what you will. Utilize the parts that work for you and speak to you. It's not about dogma and forcing a specific viewpoint or belief system on people. And like I said, you are encouraged to question those items which might not agree with your own independent research or intuition. Anyway, I find it a fascinating and important area of research, and I think many of you out there might as well. So I would feel remiss if I didn't mention that 100 years worth of issues of the Rosicrucian Digest are now available for free at www.rosicrucian.org. Uh, they've got a lot of videos and audio over there too. Uh, so maybe uh, check it out sometime with an open mind. Once again, if you have no idea where you are or how you got here, you are listening to the Mental Pop Podcast, and the archive of episodes as well as my little blog can be found at www.mentalpop.space. Likewise, you can also find me on Facebook at MentalPop31, as well as our cool new private group called Conspiracat. And if you do visit mentalpop.space, I hope you'll consider signing up for the newsletter, or you can click on the microphone icon, leave me a 90-second voice message. If you're on Facebook, I encourage you to check out MentalPop31, or get in on some discussion at our new Conspiracat group forum. Okay, folks, I am perhaps naively, cautiously optimistic uh, that we are turning the corner on the whole COVID narrative. I'm not saying it's over. I'm not saying the narrative might not come back bigger and scarier than before, but I'm cautiously, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're headed in a positive direction in terms of becoming a secondary issue, and we can finally move on to something else that doesn't take up 90% of any media program or news feed. We can't forget what has transpired over the past two years and all the unnecessary and insane bullshit, but I think the COVID obsession is hopefully dwindling down as both the left and the right are slowly ready to move on. The pharmaceutical industry has made its extra trillion dollars over the past year. Uh, they've manufactured 12 billion doses of the vaccine, and they'll keep making them. They've made their record-breaking profits, and maybe, just maybe, everyone has realized that milking of this cash cow has gone just about as far as it can go at this point. Don't get me wrong, the fight isn't over. They still want to force vaccines on every child under five years old now, as thousands of truckers are opposing vax mandates in Canada, and supposedly soon will be doing so in the United States too. The story isn't over, 
But please, oh please, let us be getting close to the finale. We're going on the third year now, y'all. And this has been the worst trilogy I've ever seen in my life. And that's really saying something considering all the bad B-horror and sci-fi movies I've watched over the decades. But pardon me for setting something up here. And we're not going to talk about COVID much at all today, thankfully. But I wanted to say something about the recent Joe Rogan controversy and cancel culture in general. To begin with, I'm not really uh, necessarily a, a big fan of Joe Rogan. And that goes back, oh, 10, 15 years or more with his association uh, with the likes of Alex Jones. In fact, the only complete episode of the Joe Rogan podcast I've ever listened to uh, was the recent episode with Dr. Robert Malone. And that's the episode which has gained so much controversy over the past month or so, and particularly the past couple weeks. I'm going to assume uh, that many of you out there have already heard the news and perhaps even uh, listened to the episode itself. Uh, so I'm not going to go into too much backstory here, but back in December, Joe Rogan had Dr. Robert Malone on his podcast, who was a very well-educated and well-respected doctor uh, with a whole lot of accolades and damn near 40 years' worth of experience in the medical field and the scientific community. Uh, Malone is also the head of an organization which consists of hundreds of doctors, physicians, and scientists, uh, which is questioning the official, uh, the official mainstream narrative regarding COVID-19. Anyway, uh, right before Malone appeared on the show back in December, he was deleted by Twitter. His account was deleted by Twitter for supposedly promoting dangerous anti-vaccine disinformation. Now, the absurdity of all this is that Dr. Robert Malone, by all definitions, is an expert in what he's discussing. And not only that, but he heads up an organization consisting of hundreds of other experts, uh, which are asking important questions and poking holes in the mainstream media COVID narrative, which has dominated news and social media for the past two years. Like I said, I really don't consider myself a Joe Rogan fan. I don't dislike Joe Rogan, uh, but to me, he's always been kind of like uh, actor Russell Brand who a lot of people seem to like and respect as being some informative and provocative personality, uh, though I personally find Russell Brand to be much douchier than Joe Rogan. So I don't dislike Joe Rogan necessarily, but I'm not what you'd call a fan either. And I don't find Dr. Robert Malone to be some inspirational figure and fountain of wisdom either, though I agree with the bulk of what he talked about in the three-hour discussion with Joe Rogan back in December. And even if I didn't agree with it, he should still be able to say it and talk about it on a public forum without being deleted and called anti-science and uh, dangerous disinformation, despite the fact he is a well-received and respected doctor in the field for over 40 years. He was hitting on a lot of points a lot of us out there have been saying for almost two years now. It was nice to have a little validation from an actual expert on the subject of vaccines and the medical industry, who once again represents hundreds of reputable doctors, physicians, and scientists across the globe. But then musical icons, the likes of Neil Young, had to dust themselves off to demand that Spotify, the platform which hosts Joe Rogan's program, either get rid of Joe Rogan or get rid of all of Neil Young's music from Spotify. And guys, God bless Neil Young. I've got nothing against Neil Young. I really like a few of his songs. Uh, he's got a few beautiful songs uh, that are now been out for 30, 40, 50 fucking years. <clears throat> but something uh, to say here about Neil Young. He moved from Canada to become a U.S. citizen in 2020, and his big reason was because he wanted to vote Democrat. 
And that's fine. He didn't like Trump, yada, yada, yada. I don't like Trump either. But honestly, aside from Neil Young causing this controversy with Spotify and Joe Rogan, this is probably the most attention Neil Young has ever gotten in his entire career. And then some other musicians, such as Joni Mitchell, got in on the act and also made an ultimatum to Spotify uh, for them to get rid of Joe Rogan or delete their music from the platform as well. And to put some backstory to this, several years ago, Joe Rogan signed a $100 million contract to have his podcast exclusively on Spotify. Yes, a $100 million contract for a podcast. And if Spotify did get rid of Rogan, uh, they'd probably have to pay him out for the rest of his contract. Likewise, every episode of Joe Rogan's podcast is estimated to have millions of listeners, uh, somewhere you know between 5 to 11 million listeners per episode. So for better or worse, Joe Rogan has been the king of the podcast for quite a few years now. But anyway, long story short, instead of Neil Young or Joni Mitchell or other musicians going after Joe Rogan, why don't they reach out to the actual expert, Dr. Robert Malone, and challenge him to some kind of a debate? Anyway, for better or worse, Joe Rogan is acting like an actual journalist right now, and I respect that about him. I respect that he's talking to everybody about actual topics and issues of importance from diverse viewpoints which is something that mainstream media is simply not doing. Joe Rogan's podcast is not scripted and is usually in the range of a three-hour conversation with all types of people. No commercial breaks. Reference point, the day after Joe Rogan had Dr. Malone on his program, his next guest was the comedian Carrot Top. If you want an idea of the random guest Joe Rogan talks to on a regular basis. Mainstream media is 100% scripted and cookie-cutter. It's a shit show pretending to be news and information. Uh, you can watch the morning news on any given day from any given news station across the country, and you'll find damn near the exact same script being used by so-called news reports and journalists in every state across the United States. And exactly when did, it become, uh, when did we become so afraid of conversation? When do we become afraid of opposing viewpoints and want to cancel it as an immediate reaction to controversial viewpoints and opinions? Of course, there's always been churches boycotting something, book burnings, uh, banning books, uh, other news. Uh, but only in the age of social media and instantaneous hashtag satisfaction and algorithms has the idea of cancel culture gotten so crazy prevalent and driven off the rails. When did people become so goddamn afraid of people thinking for themselves or having a different perspective uh, and a different viewpoint and allowing other people to do the same and live and let live? You don't like Joe Rogan or the topic he's talking about? Don't fucking listen to it. I haven't listened to Joe Rogan in what he's been on 10 years and I've just now listened to my first episode. I practically guarantee Neil Young and the others that are calling to boycott Spotify didn't even listen to the damn episode they're trying to cancel either. That's the thing about cancel culture. I highly doubt uh, that all the self-righteous media people and internet trolls even know what it is uh, they're trying to cancel half the time. They don't take the time to listen to it or watch it, and especially wouldn't take the time to read it if it was a book or an essay. There are just too many goddamn weak, cowardly ninnies today with huge viewpoints and opinions, hiding behind a keyboard, uh, don't even take the time to research or know what it is the hell they're talking about and pretending to be offended by. And in terms of the musician Neil Young, again, respects to Neil Young and his musical accomplishments. He's got a few great songs. But really, all I see is that he moved to the United States in 2020 for the sole purpose of voting for Joe Biden. Ooh, 
What a rebel. What a song of protest that is. To move to the U.S. when you're over 70 years old just to vote for Joe Biden and attack a podcast host who has a controversial guest on the program. Keep on rocking in the free world where we want to cancel anyone who says something we disagree with. And not try to cancel it, at least use it as an opportunity. And usually it's a financial opportunity or a promotional opportunity, as is often the case with celebrities and politicians. Anyway, Rogan gave an apology of sorts, and Spotify says it will now add warning labels to shows that deal with COVID-19 and other controversial topics, and they'll delete more content, uh, which questions the official narrative in regards to COVID. And folks, all I can think here is this won't really affect Joe Rogan adversely at all. But what about my podcast? What about Mental Pop? What about the hundreds or possibly even thousands of podcasts which are now on Spotify that speak out against the mainstream narrative of COVID or the podcast with alternative viewpoints and opinions that might ruffle some tail feathers and make a couple of waves, make some people uncomfortable? Will the smaller podcasts, such as Mental Pop and countless others, be the real ones to suffer the ramifications of censorship and flagging and deletion because of controversial viewpoints? Only time will tell. They've already deleted over 70 episodes of Rogan's podcast due to the controversy, yet not the actual episodes where he dealt with COVID. And then to insert themselves into the controversy is Grammy-winning musician India R.E., and I have absolutely no idea who she is, uh, but she released a video that went viral of Joe Rogan using the N-word on several occasions, which he also apologized for, and said that it was all taken out of context, which it seems that it was taken out of context. It wasn't being used necessarily in a derogatory or racist manner. And I can only ask if the musician Indy Ari, who was offended by Rogan's racial slurs, uh, if she was so offended by it, why did she wait until he was already embroiled in a controversy to attack him on this issue? And then not just attack him on the issue, but state that she was leaving Spotify because she wasn't making enough money from her music streaming there. Once again, I'm not a big Joe Rogan fan, but this is definitely all seems like a coordinated attack on him, primarily for the reason that he has a guest on that wasn't peddling the mainstream media's COVID narrative. And because, uh, quite honestly, his ratings are a lot greater than uh, most mainstream news competitors today. That's kind of crazy to think. A guy who's got a podcast on Spotify has more uh, listeners and viewers than CNN, uh, MSNBC, and several others out there, Fox as well. He's got the highest ratings in the media business right now, which is very odd. Anyway, I can't say I care too much about this or Rogan or Neil Young or Spotify in general, but we can only wonder how this will ultimately continue the stifling of free speech on platforms such as Spotify in the near future, particularly for smaller podcasts with far less audiences and who doesn't have a $100 million contract. Reading rainbow.
here we go. And there's a lot to get to today, so please bear with me as I'm sure I'll fumble through some of this. Uh, here we go with the 2022 rundown of 22 plus books that changed my perspective or validated my perspective or otherwise spoke to me on a deep level. I'm going to do my best to only touch upon each book for a minute or two so that we can get through this episode and keep it under an hour. So let's get to it, shall we? And before we go, why not make a drinking game of it? Every time I mention a new book, you should take a shot or sip a beer because I promise this show is much, much better when you are at least slightly inebriated. Okay, here we go. Of course, how could we not begin uh, with what might be considered to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time, and that is with the classic and highly influential work 1984 by George Orwell. And of course, Mr. Orwell also wrote the best-selling work of social commentary, Animal Farm, and he's also famous for several other works and essay collections, but is with the seminal work 1984, which was published in 1949, that put Orwell on the map and has stood the test of time. Of course, sadly, 1984 is about uh, what was, at the time, a dystopian future headed up by Big Brother and the Thought Police that still registers with modern readers as either a possible future that is on the near horizon or a technocratic state of complete media-controlled double-think-and-thought crimes, which does undoubtedly seem to be snowballing in the 21st century and in the year 2021 with constant fact-checking by the so-called experts. If you've never read 1984, I highly recommend uh, you turn this podcast off right now and go do so. It continues to be a bestseller, even 70 plus years after its initial publication. And I had to start off today's episode mentioning 1984. And of course, a couple side notes here. And one is that around 2012, I came across the first U.S. edition hardback and a lot of books that I purchased. Uh, I only purchased a lot for a couple of bucks. I didn't know that I had a first printing of 1984 in there. And then when I looked it up at the time, the book uh, was worth a couple hundred dollars. And I ended up selling it for about 125 bucks. I was running a store, a collectible store at the time. Now, 10 years later, uh, there's only one copy of the first U.S. edition of 1984 on eBay. And it's going for about $1,000. Needless to say, selling my first U.S. edition of 1984 is a life regret for several reasons. And secondly, I'm not sure some of the readers uh, might realize this, not to give a spoiler because the book is damn near 70 years old at this point. But in the finale of 1984, in the epilogue, it's actually spoken with a sense that it's been a few years since the events of 1984 and that Big Brother has fallen and that the totalitarian superstate of Oceania, ruled by the party, has since collapsed. The epilogue speaks of Oceana as in a past tense, as something that once was and should never be again. So ultimately, 1984 actually ends on a positive note. And next up, another greatest of all time, entry that many state as being their favorite or most recommended book on conspiracies, and that is the seminal work, Behold a Pale Horse, written by William Milton Cooper, otherwise known as Bill Cooper, which was published in 1991. And Behold a Pale Horse is a classic just for the cover alone, uh, which would give it a reason to sit on any collector's bookshelf. Now, I'll be honest, while I certainly admire Bill Cooper for authoring this underground classic, as well as his regular AM radio Hour of the Time program that he hosted, the book Behold a Pale Horse itself didn't really do a lot for me. I mean, it's definitely worth a read and worth consideration, but when I first read it in the early 2000s, it wasn't something that was mind-blowing for me or necessarily opened my eyes to much. There are a couple of things which makes Bill Cooper a legend, 
Uh, Behold a Pale Horse, a must-read for any serious researcher. The first is the fact uh, that in early 2000, uh, 2001, uh, Bill Cooper was actually the first person on his Hour of the Time radio program to state that the U.S. would soon experience a terrorist attack that would be blamed on Osama bin Laden and that it would be used as a false flag attack. Now, it was conspiracy uh, host and documentary filmmaker Alex Jones who would become famous uh, for making this exact same prediction just a couple months before the events of 9-11. But it was actually Bill Cooper who first stated that there would be a false flag terrorist attack and that Osama bin Laden would be blamed for it as a pretext to go to war in the Middle East. Of course, Alex Jones being Alex Jones, he took the recognition for this prediction, uh, which uh, catapulted his career once 9-11 took place. But it was Bill Cooper who first made the statement of a false flag terrorist attack. And secondly, another one of the things that put Cooper in the status of a legendary conspiracy theorist is that he was sadly killed by police on his own front porch on November 5th, 2001, less than two months after the events of 9-11. And there are a lot of rumors and a lot of different versions of what took place, uh, but my best understanding is that Cooper, who was a heavy drinker and sometimes would get into trouble in town, had police show up at his doorstep for an altercation that had taken place earlier in the day. It said that Cooper was armed and inebriated, uh, and uh, an altercation had taken place, um, and then his dog attacked one of the police officers, and the police officer then shot his dog, uh, which caused Cooper to shoot one of the officers and the officers to return fire, uh, fatally killing William Mil- Milton Cooper on his front porch. Some of Cooper's fans believe that this was meant as a sort of a, an entrapment, since Cooper had always stated that he'd never be taken alive if police were called to his residence. They shot his dog. However you want to look at it, Cooper is a somewhat larger-than-life figure in the community of conspiracy theory. A couple of interesting closing notes here is that when I used to run my collectible comic book bookstore, uh, about 2012 to 2016, the book Behold a Pale Horse was the most requested book that customers were always asking for. I must have ordered that book a dozen times over the course of five years just to try to keep it in stock. And secondly, I also find it very notable that towards the end of his career, uh, that Bill Cooper, he was kind of changing his stance on the topic of UFOs and ufology, in which he was coming to believe that the cover-up was really all a government black ops program with experimental craft, and that the abductions were taking place from governments and militaries around the world who were experimenting on human test subjects. All I can say in close is that Behold a Pale Horse belongs on the bookshelf of any serious researcher. Up next, and you got to take it with a grain of salt, and even a tablespoon of salt, but I'm going to go with Children of the Matrix, published by David Icke in 2001 with some perfect timing. David Icke, of course, is noted as being the author and speaker who popularized the idea of interdimensional shape-shifting reptilians, not to mention blood drinkers, which has since permeated not only conspiracy theory, but pop culture in general. And to me, Children of the Matrix is a must-read and a must-have for any serious researcher into these topics. But once again, it must be taken with a healthy dose of salt. I was a fan of David Icke uh, when this book was released in 2001. I think I first probably read the book uh, around 2003. And if taken on a symbolic and allegorical level, Children of the Matrix is a really great uh, sort of expose 
into historical and ancient secret societies and blood sacrifice and ritual magic and a lot of other deep and heavy topics. And I wish Ike would have just left it open to interpretation and allegory and symbolism and using, using metaphors uh, to relay his message. But to me, he kind of jumped the shark when he stated early on that he 100% believed in everything he was writing. When Ike stated that he absolutely believed that interdimensional blood-drinking, shape-shifting reptilians were real and factual and not just allegorical, I kind of had to take a step back uh, in any, uh, you know, endorsements I had of Ike because I didn't, nor do I ever, want to muddy the waters of truth uh, with far-fetched ideology. And again, like I said, if these ideas had remained allegorical and symbolic and, and metaphoric, uh, I completely agree that we are dealing with interdimensional, blood-drinking, shape-shifting reptilians. But I'm not going to promote that as an indisputable fact. You know what I'm saying? Regardless, Children of the Matrix is a must-read in my opinion. And honestly, and this isn't trying to be negative towards David Icke, but it's really the only book of his that I actually recommend. A few of his other works, including Infinite Love is the Only Truth, Everything Else is an Illusion, and Tales from the Time Loop, and he's got many others. It's really just a vaguely reworded rehash of all the same information which you can find in Children of the Matrix, as well as his book The Biggest Secret. Another interesting side note on this entry is that over the course of uh, a few years back, in the early 2000s, I was actually in a pretty regular email correspondence uh, with David Icke's son, uh, the musician Gareth Icke, and even interviewed him on several occasions in regards to his music, as well as his father's work and beliefs. And I can't help but to think that when David Icke was at his height, around 2002 to 2008, uh, that was like the height and pinnacle of the conspiracy community itself. That was the good old days, if you will. Maybe it's because I myself was in my early 20s during this period, and I somewhat romanticized it all at the time. Uh, but I must say, uh, this day and age of QAnon and endless social media memes doesn't have anything on the good old days in the early 2000s, pre-MySpace and pre-Facebook and pre-social media, where thousands and thousands of people took to a vast variety of internet message boards and forums to discuss the latest podcasts and documentaries and books, uh, which you young listeners out there today uh, have to understand, uh, this was all becoming a booming business in the years after 9-11. For better and definitely for worse as well. <coughs> Excuse me. The conspiracy weirdos were coming out of the woodwork. And I don't say that negatively necessarily, because I remember that decade fondly. And David Icke was definitely one of the big names during that period. Next on our list, and another big name during this period in popular and a best-selling book, was Rule by Secrecy, written by journalist Jim Mars. That was also published in 2001, and at the perfect timing, which was just a few months before the events of 9-11. And Jim Mars, while inevitably I disagree with some of his overall ideas and conclusions... He's an author and an actual respected journalist, which I would recommend all of his books, including The Alien Agenda, as well as his book Crossfire, which is centered around the JFK assassination and considered one of the most important books on the topic of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And I wish to emphasize again Jim Mars, who unfortunately passed away in 2017. He was actually a journalist, as well as a New York Times bestselling author. Just everything he did was uh, very well respected and referenced, he gave a certain aura of respectability to what otherwise might just have been seen as kooky conspiracy theories. 
uh, such as secret societies, the New World Order, uh, the JFK cover-up, and even UFOs and aliens, among other topics. He was a regular guest on the overnight radio program Coast to Coast AM, which I also enjoyed heavily at the time, and Rule by Secrecy, as well as most of his other books and works I would definitely recommend for any serious researcher into this type of subject matter. And uh, just a great book of reference for any bookshelf. His book, The Alien Agenda, is one of the most concise exposés of ufology and historical sightings and abductions that I've ever read. So once again, Rule by Secrecy by Jim Mars. Up next, and I'm not really going to go in any order here of importance necessarily, or how, how much I recommend these particular books. I'm not going alphabetically or by the year of their publication either. Uh, so I'm just kind of randomly giving a shout out to 22 of my favorite books on a particular thread of subject matter, uh, which is conspiracy and some of the related branches of conspiracy. And that goes right along with what I consider to be a drastically underrated work. And that comes with The Shining Ones, which was published in 2003, was written by authors and researchers Philip Gardner and Gary Osborne, uh, which was followed up a couple years later with another cool book called The Serpent Grail, uh, which is also written by Philip Gardner and Gary Osborne. And I have to preface something here, and that is the fact that during this period and shortly after, I was actually in regular correspondence with both Philip Gardner and Gary Osborne, who at the time, shall we say, uh, they weren't on the best of terms. Uh, but I interviewed Philip Gardner and Gary Osborne on multiple occasions, and was even interviewed once by Philip Gardner himself for his own website. But despite all that, please allow me to say that, particularly, The Shining Ones is an extremely underrated book, in my opinion. Uh, though I'm not saying I personally endorse all of its ideas and themes uh, that are contained within. Uh, but it is a book that truly resonated with me because it was a lot of ideas and viewpoints uh, that I was coming uh, into my own perspective on at the time, independently. Uh, so I would 100% recommend The Shining Ones, the world's most powerful secret society revealed, if you want to check out something new that you maybe never considered. I had close communication with Philip Gardner for several years uh, when I was running my own website and doing podcasts and interviews between 2002 and 2010. Uh, but unfortunately, I took a break up until 2019, and I've lost touch with a whole lot of cool and interesting people during that time. But here we are again with the Mental Pop Podcast and social media pages, and I'm trying again to dig in deep to some relevant and interesting topics and discussion. Okay, so where do we want to go next? All right, how about what myself and many others consider to be uh, the 1984 of the graphic medium, and that is with the comic book history, uh, and the comic book history, <clears throat> and that is with the unmatched classic Watchmen, published by DC Comics between 1986 and 1987. Watchmen, of course, comes from the creative team of writer Alan Moore and artist Dave Gibbons, and is considered by many as being on many lists, including a rundown from Time Magazine in 2005, as one of the 100 greatest works of literature ever written. And notice how I say books and not just comic books. In 1986 and 87, Watchmen was one of the main attractions on the forefront of moving comic books into a more adult age of storytelling possibilities, and Watchmen was one of the uh, th it was one of those rare cases uh, which can appeal to both comic book fans as well as just avid readers alike. Watchmen felt like literature, not just a comic book, and still has mass sales and appeal to this day. And of course, for better and for worse, 
Unfortunately, Watchmen began having some spinoffs and prequels a few years ago, including a widely acclaimed HBO Max series, which was actually pretty good. But I think a lot of fans would have just liked it if Watchmen had just remained Watchmen and didn't get sequels and prequels, etc., etc., etc. Not that some of them actually weren't pretty good, and I'm definitely not a fan, uh, and I'm definitely, I am a fan of the Zack Snyder film adaptation from 2009, especially the extended edition. Uh, though the film pretty much bombed at the time of its release, aside from uh, breaking some IMAX records at the time. I understand that fans might have uh, been hungry for more uh, tales of the Watchmen and prequel stories and sequels, etc. And uh, that Watchmen was definitely a marketable property, as the original was consistently on bestseller lists. But I'm just not so sure that the continuation of the story has really paid off and was worth it to keep uh, milking uh, the Watchmen cow. Kind of like Watchmen went from being actual literature uh, and the kind of high art uh, to being just another comic book franchise. But the detective story and the original finale of Watchmen, uh, which of course consists of a fake interdimensional alien invasion in order to supposedly save the world, uh, that's a prime reason why this title deserves a place today on our list of 22 books in 2022. And I just mentioned the original Watchmen as a form of high art. And up next on the list is actually a book entitled High Art, A History of the Psychedelic Poster, uh, which was published in 1999. And uh, what High Art was uh, and is, is a fully illustrated and in full color, might I add, uh, rundown of the history of music posters and flyers, concert posters and flyers from the 1960s and 70s. And I think this book uh, makes it on today's list because uh, I love music and making music and the history of music. And I got a 1999, just it came out, and represented not only the end of the century and a new millennium, uh, but it also was the end of my teenage years. It was just a really awesome rundown of the times that were going on in the 1960s and the history and development of the psychedelic poster in order to promote bands and gigs and events. It's a very um, well-presented time capsule of the period of the 1960s and early 70s. And I only had that book for a couple of years before I gave it to a family member, and I don't regret giving it to them. Uh, but today, that damn good book goes anywhere from $100 to $200. So if I ever run across an extra 150 bucks, I definitely would consider getting another copy of High Art, The History of the Psychedelic Poster. And let me say here, I'm going to make this book a tie. This is the first tie on our list today, uh, but I'm going to also say that Psychedelic Prayers by Timothy Leary... Uh, which was self-published in 1966. I'm going to have that be the tie today. And of course, Leary was famous for Turn On, Tune In, and Drop Out, uh, among other things in the 60s and 70s. He was a preeminent counterculture icon and LSD guru. But I also I had the first printing of Psychedelic Prayers, uh, which was really just a poetry book uh, that my father gave me when I was a teenager. And then when I owned my own business in 2012 to 2016, I foolishly sold this book for about $75. And today I can't even find a copy of the first printing anywhere. But the last time I checked, it was going for damn near $1,000. My father passed away, uh, sadly, uh, in 2019, uh, which is definitely a whole different topic and one that still kind of haunts me to this day. But needless to say, if anybody out there listening today has a first printing of Psychedelic Prayers by Timothy Leary, and if you enjoy the Mental Pop Podcast, please hit me up because I'd be happy to barter with you 
about getting back a first edition copy of this book, even if it's not in great condition. So yes, folks, this entry was a tie between the books High Art and then Psychedelic Prayers by Timothy Leary. And we'll probably have a couple of other ties today, which will give us more than 22 books and more bang for your buck. So let's tackle another one of these ties, uh, because it was impossible for me to choose one or the other. And while these are complete works of fiction, I think they deserve a place on this list today. And that is with what might come as a surprise to some people. Uh, but that is with two books by none other than Stephen King, who was then writing under the name Richard Bachman. And the two works I'm speaking of today are Roadwork and The Long Walk. And we could easily fit The Running Man in here as well, uh, as it also has a certain political theme and an underlying theme of, dy of a dystopian future. But particularly Roadwork and The Long Walk are not only two of my favorite Bachman books, uh, but two of my favorite Stephen King books in general. Uh, Roadwork is the story of a man who takes his final stand in order to save his family's home from the industrial progress of the city, which is planning to build a freeway through the area. And The Long Walk is about a life-or-death game show set in a future dystopian America ruled by a totalitarian and militaristic dictator, and the plot revolves around the teenage contestants of a grueling annual walking contest. Both books are disturbing and haunting, and are most of all uh, the works uh, written under the moniker Richard Bachman. Most everything he wrote under the Bachman moniker is disturbing and haunting, very pessimistic. Uh, there was always something very distinctive which separated Stephen King from Richard Bachman, including a certain gritty realism and pessimism, most of which uh, never had the outcome of a happy ending. I only wish there had been a few more books written under the Richard Bachman pseudonym, uh, but I would definitely, definitely, definitely recommend both Road Work and The Long Walk if you want to peer into levels of literary significance, uh, such as it comes with books like 1984 and many of the others that are going to be uh, spoken of today. And ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're sticking in there, hanging in there, because I think we're almost at the halfway point of today's episode. Where to next? Well, shit, let's just, uh, let's just stick with the ties for now. Up first, I'm going to have to put the seminal 1968 book, Chariots of the Gods, by Eric Von Doniken. And while I'm personally uh, still open to many possibilities and unanswered questions, I am not a follower of the ideas of ancient aliens, though it is, of course, fascinating. Uh, but nobody could really question or deny the fact that the book Chariots of the Gods laid the groundwork for the entire idea of ancient aliens, uh, which is still hugely popular and alive over 50 years later. Chariots of the Gods was an immensely huge bestseller at the time, and while the book itself didn't necessarily impress me, uh, I must have watched the Chariots of the Gods documentary from 1970 a dozen times or more as a teenager and into my early 20s. And a lot of the examples used in Chariots of the Gods has, has long been debunked, or deeply questioned, uh, Eric Von Doniken, he came along uh, with Lightning in a Bottle in 1968 with the classic work, and has influenced hundreds of other books, documentaries, and television shows uh, for the next 50 years. And I would have to make this book tied with another important book of a very similar subject matter, and that is The Twelfth Planet by Zachariah Sitchin from 1976, uh, which also became a bestseller, had many other follow-up books in the series, uh, now, while I think there's a basic premise of ancient Sumerian lore, uh, which we can validate through cross-referencing with other historical sources, I'm going to be honest here, uh, and not to be harsh, 
Uh, but I've always thought Zachariah Sitchin was kind of kind of full of shit and peddling sensational over exaggerations that could not be cross-referenced or verified uh, with any other scholarly sources. I think a whole lot of the mythology and illustrations that Sitchin claimed to be an expert on uh, was complete forgery or massively wild speculation on his part. I never liked that he claimed it to be the foremost experts and the only person who could decipher the ancient Sumerian texts. Uh, when there are dozens of scholarly sources we can cite from if we want to talk about ancient Sumerian history and mythology. Again, I think that the main premise of Sitchin's hypothesis is valid, and that uh, that is that the Sumerian kinghood and priesthood did announce themselves as gods and immortals and beings from other worlds some 7,000 plus years ago. Uh, but Sitchin took it into some very sensational speculation, which he presented as facts, and that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I think it rubbed me the wrong way because so many people believed in it as all being uh, expert uh, expert uh, information and totally factual. That being said, the 12th planet and the series associated with it sold extremely well in the 1970s as well as to this day. Uh, we can't underestimate the impact that Sitchin as well as Eric Von Doniken had on the landscape of not only ufology, uh, but many current pop culture ideas of what our supposed human history actually is. They weren't necessarily the first to present these ideas, as many types of stories were often represented in the science fiction tales and pulps from the 1930s to the 1950s. Uh, but Von Donneken and Sitchin uh, brought new energy to this idea of ancient aliens, and did so in what was, at the time, considered to be a somewhat scholarly and non-fiction approach to the material. <clears throat> So while I personally disagree with the presentation of those books, i got to give respects to Eric Von Doniken and Zachariah Sitchin for changing the landscape of ufology forever. Uh, sold like hotcakes. And we can still see that today with shows like Ancient Aliens and dozens of other programs, documentaries, uh, which are still extremely popular. And while we're on the topic of ufology, uh, which I think might be the last time we mention it on today's list, I have to give a shout-out... <clears throat> to what was an old associate of mine from back in the day, a very cool and down-to-earth dude of whom I was lucky enough to have correspondence with for several years and got to interview on several occasions, and that is the late researcher and immensely prolific blogger Mac Tonys, who unfortunately passed away in 2009 at the very young age of 34. And I can't say that Mac and I were friends necessarily, and I think Mac was so personable that a lot of people, at least online, would have considered Mac a friend. But I definitely considered him an associate and a peer, and I was definitely a fan of his work and his personality. Anyway, um, he was working on a book when he died. Sadly, it never got to see completion in the way that I think Mac uh, would have wanted it to. And it's more of a long-form essay of about 100 pages. Uh, but the book was released uh, posthumously in 2010, uh, the year after his death. And it's entitled The Crypto-Terrestrials. And while Mac didn't necessarily invent this idea, he became somewhat famous in the ufology community for terming the phrase of the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis. And what is the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis? It's the idea that UFOs and alien visitations are not coming from other planets, but instead from a secret race of humanoids who have always been with us and reside within the inner Earth, uh, an evolutionary divergence uh, from Homo sapien. A hidden race who has technology more advanced than humanity and who has always influenced us from behind the scenes. 
And again, Mac's death was tragic, and I can only imagine uh, where he might have gone had he lived, because he just recently appeared on programs such as Coast to Coast AM for the first time, uh, and was a regular guest on various documentaries as well. He had a really cool grasp on topics of futurism and transhumanism. But the crypto-terrestrials book, to me, is the legacy that he left behind, and I only wish he'd lived long enough to better flesh out uh, his ideas and research on this topic. Uh, so with respects to an old homie uh, that was gone too soon, I have to put the book The Crypto Terrestrials on this list today, and also to state that if I were inclined uh, to go with an ET theory myself, the crypto terrestrial hypothesis seems more realistic and possible to me than most other theories. I am, in my own way and in my own research, a promoter of the crypto terrestrial hypothesis. Now where do we go from here? Uh, we got to take it to another work which is considered a classic in the realms of conspiracy research, and that is with the Illuminatus Trilogy, written by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson in 1975. The three books, usually collected in one volume, are The Eye in the Pyramid, The Golden Apple, and Leviathan. And there were many follow-up books over the years and decades from both authors, uh, both fiction and nonfiction, that expanded on the paranoia and conspiracy they had created with the Illuminatus trilogy. And there's just way too much uh, to try and unwrap here when talking about the Illuminatus trilogy. Uh, perhaps one of the things it's most famous for is popularizing the idea of Discordianism, and for all intents and purposes, bringing the idea of conspiracy theories, uh, many of them rather wacky and outlandish on the surface, uh, from out of the fringes and into a more mainstream setting of acceptance and consideration. Of course, all of the books by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson are considered underground, uh, underground classics, uh, but these were definitely some of the first books involving conspiracy theories that really pushed forward in the mainstream and really made a name for itself. It all not only fed off of pop culture myths and legends, but became a part of and influenced those pop culture myths and legends. Needless to say, I couldn't not include the Illuminatus trilogy on today's list for heavily influencing the idea of what it meant to be a conspiracy theorist and just how deep the web went and the rabbit hole went, uh, even if it's done in a somewhat tongue-in-cheek way and almost delves into the realms of parody. That being said, there's no denying the impact that Shane Wilson had uh, on the ideas of global conspiracies and the New World Order in the 1970s and 80s. Now let's keep, uh, keep, uh, keep plowing forward, shall we? The 60 Greatest Conspiracies of All Time, published in 1996, written by John Vonkin and John Whalen. And this was ultimately expanded and updated in 2004 as the book The 80 Greatest Conspiracies of All Time, which runs over 700 pages. Now, first and foremost, I picked this book up, uh, the original 60 Greatest Conspiracies of All Time, uh, sometime in the very early 2000s. And the main thing that stuck with me, besides uh, the being well-researched on its subject matter, was the fact that it was literally broken up into 60 conspiracies and chapters uh, that sometimes were cross-referenced against each other. If you wanted to research JFK or secret societies or the feds and international banking or the moon landings and UFOs, there were specific chapters devoted to 60 different topics, later expanded to 80 different topics with the 2004 edition. It serves as a one-stop shop crash course or even a refresher course on some of the biggest conspiracy theories in the past 100 years, encourages researchers to go further down the rabbit hole on their own. 
So the 60 greatest conspiracies and the 80 greatest conspiracies definitely deserves a place on the bookshelf of any serious researcher and book collector. And it was one of the first works uh, that I published, uh, that I purchased, excuse me. It was one of the first books that I purchased uh, when I began my personal research over 20 years ago. Another work I highly recommend uh, is the book, Who Should Play God? from 1977 by Ted Howard and Jeremy Rifkin. Who Should Play God is a very well-researched and academic look at the history of eugenics, in particular the American eugenics movement of the early 20th century and how U.S. eugenics policies actually helped to inspire Hitler and the Nazi party uh, when they were putting their own eugenics practices into law. While Who Should Play God is not the only book that's uh, important over the past 50 years to cover the topic of eugenics, it's a very well-researched and documented account of what might very well be the darkest decades in U.S. history, uh, starting around 1900, about 1908, and lasting until the 1930s and 1940s, and some would argue is still being enacted today in the 21st century. Who Should Play God also took a rather controversial approach in the late 70s by not only tackling the topics of the U.S. eugenics movement, but also of the possible future of designer babies, artificial wombs, transhumanism, and the threat of a scientific dictatorship. If you've never researched the American eugenics movement of the early 20th century before, this book is a very in-depth place to begin reading. And before we proceed, I promise I'm going to try to make this shorter in terms of how much time I give to each book. There are books we won't even be able to go into detail about today, uh, but I am contractually obligated to put out a new podcast every few weeks, otherwise my $100 million contract will become null and void. So let's move forward as I try to keep these episodes at under an hour in length. What can be said about the mysterious and massively prolific icon of Edgar Cayce, otherwise known as the American prophet, and the most well-regarded prophet of the 20th century. All I can say about Edgar Cayce is that he caught my attention at a very young age, and I became fascinated probably before I was even a teenager. And I don't agree, absolutely not, with all of Cayce's predictions. Many of them have long since turned out to not be true. However, I still find Cayce an inspiring figure, and one which certainly stimulates the imagination. There are dozens of books dedicated to Cayce's readings, or about Cayce, uh, but I would have to say that Edgar Casey, There Is a River, and Edgar Casey, The Sleeping Prophet are the two books that I put on this list today. And some people might wonder why I put Edgar Casey in a list with books like 1984 or Children of the Matrix. But at the core, we're dealing with prophecy in America, as well as biblical prophecy. And Casey always left us with what was ultimately a positive affirmation. All I can say is that as a kid of 12 years old or so, Casey was probably the first one that really pulled me into what would be considered the research of alternative information and viewpoints. I think it was Edgar Casey, as well as Nostradamus, uh, the topic of UFOs, and that damn series of time-life books uh, from the late 80s that really originally led me on a path of investigation and research. And of course, the Edgar Casey ARE Center, uh, the Association for Research and Enlightenment, is still going strong today in the 21st century with many thousands of members across the globe. And speaking of another figure that hooked me very early in life, 
I also have to mention and pay respects to the innovative mythologist Joseph Campbell, in particular his seminal work Hero with a Thousand Faces, originally published in 1949, and which is still extremely influential to this day. Of course, Campbell was an American author and the professor of literature at Sarah Lawrence College, who worked in comparative mythology and comparative religion. And Campbell had dozens upon dozens of lectures, as well as books, that are well worth investigating for anyone who is interested in world mythologies from ancient time to present day, and the ways in which it all connects and it all relates to one another. In Rosicrucianism, it is thought of as the primordial tradition. And that is in the idea that all world mythologies and religions are connected by certain principles of their foundation, and that they are all interrelated with interrelated characters and folklore. And we have highly influential books uh, which came out before Campbell, uh, such as The Golden Bow, uh, written by George uh, by James George Frazier in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, but Campbell was not uh, only literary, but highly articulate in expressing the information in his interpretation of comparative world mythology through countless lectures, essays, and publications. Campbell really uh, is the one that popularized the idea of uh, taking world mythology seriously for a more wide-reaching audience, and how all of the ancient myths and folklores have common themes and a common heritage. All I can say is that watching the Power of Myth series on PBS in the late 80s and early 90s uh, really kind of opened my eyes to a larger picture and the larger scope of world religions and our interconnectedness as a species and as a planet. And the Power of Myth documentary series was also published as a book for those who would rather read it uh, then watch a six-hour PBS documentary. Needless to say, The Hero with a Thousand Faces and The Power of Myth should be on any serious bookshelf, and Joseph Campbell was definitely another influential figure who inspired my imagination at a very early age and continues to do so. And in this same vein, I think we can consider a great uh, supplement to the works of Joseph Campbell <clears throat> to be those from the occult author and researcher Manly P. Hall, and particularly his classic voluminous work, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, uh, which is considered by many to be the most comprehensive and complete esoteric encyclopedia ever written. Secret Teachings of All Ages was published in 1928 for an estimated $150,000, while copies of the book were being sold for $50 to $100, which, as you can imagine, was a small fortune in the year 1928. Considering the fact that in 1930 a car cost about 600 bucks, uh, this massive volume of esoteric knowledge and wisdom had an asking price of $100, not to mention this was during the period of the Great Depression. So the point here is that The Secret Teaching of All Ages was definitely not, uh, at least not when it first was published, as a resource of information. It wasn't meant really for the average person. Uh, the average person couldn't afford it. Also considering the fact that in 1930 the average paperback cost about 69 cents. Now, of course, Secret Teaching is definitely not your typical paperback, and it consists of over 600 pages and dozens upon dozens of illustrations, many of them which are beautifully illustrated in full color. A rather enigmatic and mysterious figure, uh, Manly P. Hall is largely considered the godfather uh, regarding the topics of the occult and esoteric in the 20th century. And while Secret Teaching is an awesome uh, must-have for any serious researcher bookshelf, I always found that secret teaching was mildly uh, whitewashing the topic of historical occult rituals and secret societies. I felt that it wasn't being completely honest and was only covering the more positive aspects of occult rituals and secret societies. 
Likewise, and I'm not judging his entire body of work based on one mention and this short paragraph in Secret Teachings of All the Ages, uh, but towards the end of the book, uh, there's a quote which mentions the importance of Lucifer. And uh, this is the only mention of Lucifer in the entire 600-plus page book, and it's kind of hidden away. But the quote is thus, quote, When the Mason learns that the key is the proper application of the dynamo of living power, he has learned the mystery of the craft. The seething energies of Lucifer are in his hands. So while I definitely think uh, the works of Manly P. Hall are very uh, worth time and attention and research, uh, we also must take it with a bit of a grain of salt and discernment and understand that ultimately uh, Manly P. Hall is saying that all of the occult wisdom uh, and esoteric traditions and symbolism and secret societies and rituals are serving the power of and drawing the power forth from Lucifer, the light bringer. <laughs> And on a completely opposite end of the spectrum, and dealing more with the ideas and themes of spirituality and philosophy, we have to take a moment to speak on the beautiful and thought-provoking poetry, prose, and illustrations of the masterful author and artist Khalil Gibran. Gibran is the author of over a dozen books, perhaps, perhaps most famous of which are the classic works The Madman from 1918 and The Prophet from 1923. And Gibran always uh, has the rare and delicate touch of being able to transverse between a feeling of both tragedy as well as optimism, and his works truly have a way of speaking to the soul. And once again, his talent as an illustrator and painter is also a beautiful supplement to his talents as an author and a poet. The following I'm about to read is from the 1918 book, The Madman, and is entitled The Madman. You ask me how I became a madman. It happened thus. One day, long before many gods were born, I woke from a deep sleep and found all of my masks were stolen, the seven masks I have fashioned and worn in seven lives. I ran maskless through the crowded streets, shouting, Thieves! Thieves! The cursed thieves! Men and women laughed at me, and some ran to their houses in fear of me. And when I reached the marketplace, a youth standing on a housetop cried, He is a madman! I looked up to behold him. The sun kissed my own naked face for the first time. For the first time, the sun kissed my own naked face, and my soul was inflamed with love for the sun, and I wanted masks no more. And as if in a trance, I cried, Blessed, blessed are the thieves who stole my masks. Thus, I became the madman, and I have found both freedom and safety in my madness. The freedom of loneliness and the safety from being understood. For those who are understood us, who understand us, enslave something in us. But let me not be too proud of my safety. Even a thief in a jail is safe from another thief. And our next entry might seem a bit out of place for some listeners when compared to other books on this list today. Uh, but I'm going to place the John Silence series... Uh, which began in 1988, uh, 1908. It began in 1908 and was written by the master of the macabre and supernatural, Algernon Blackwood. There were six books in the John Silence series, all of which are most typically published in a single volume. So I'm not going to mention all six of the novellas or short stories as one longer work. Uh, I'm just going to I'm just going to mention it all as one book, which we consider to be John Silence. Uh, also referred to as John Silence, uh, Physician Extraordinary. John Silence, for all intents and purposes, 
Uh, he was a psychic detective who explored several cases of bizarre, unusual, and the supernatural. And I mentioned the John Silence series and the works of Algernon Blackwood in particular, uh, because Blackwood was at the forefront of the booming popularization on the topics of the esoteric, supernatural, paranormal, uh, seances, spirit communication, life after death, uh, as well as stories of fairies and sprites and angels and demons, uh, psychic attacks, astral projection, telepathy, and many other topics which ultimately went on to influence the so-called New Age movement of the 1960s and 70s. Uh, during his long life, uh, which was uh, 1869 to 1951, Algernon Blackwood was a preeminent author of The Strange and Unusual, and is even considered the front-runner of cosmic horror, and was heavily influential to H.P. Lovecraft, who considered Algernon Blackwood to be a master storyteller. Algernon Blackwood even hosted his own radio programs, narrating his stories uh, to huge audiences, and for all intents and purposes, was a very uh, successful author and personality in the early 20th century. Which is why it's so surprising to me uh, that Algernon Blackwood, uh, while he's not completely forgotten and unknown, he's still a rather overlooked and underrated icon of supernatural terror and topics of the unexplained, uh, paranormal, and the uncanny. And while he penned dozens and dozens of books and short story collections during his life, it has to be the John Silence series, which has stuck out with me the most. And I've read the entire series more than once, and I recommend Blackwood uh, not only as a source of uncanny tales in the paranormal and supernatural, but as a messenger of a very optimistic and positive spiritual message, uh, which is dictated by positive energies, and uh, more often than not, uh, positive outcomes uh, for the protagonists of his works. In the early 1900s, uh, 1900s and 20s, 30s and 40s, Algernon Blackwood was basically the Twilight Zone, uh, before the Twilight Zone, and speaks to readers on a level that transcends uh, just being a tale of make-believe and fiction. Up next, we have another tie, and that tie comes with the acclaimed and Nobel Prize winning author William Golding with his first and second novels. The first being the classic Lord of the Flies, and the second being his follow-up novel entitled The Inheritors. Of course, I don't think I need to go into too much detail about the famous book, Lord of the Flies, uh, which was the debut novel, uh, the debut novel of William Golding in 1954, uh, which is, of course, it's a cautionary tale about the breakdown of society and social bonds and survival of the fittest. Uh, but I found his follow-up book from 1955, The Inheritors, to be just as memorable, engaging, and important. The Inheritors is considered a work of prehistoric science fiction and centers around a group of Neanderthals who encounter a group of Homo sapiens uh, for the first time. And like Lord of the Flies, The Inheritors is also a cautionary tale of the bonds of society dealing with the other and dealing with something that is slightly more advanced and beyond your understanding of reality. And one amazing thing about The Inheritors, besides it being just a very well-written and well-paced book, uh, with a huge uh, message of social commentary, is that the main characters of the book don't really speak in a language. Uh, they, they do have some primitive symbolic words and pictographs, but we are reading more about their unspoken or telepathic communication with one another uh, through the course of the book. I can only imagine how challenging it might have been to write a book where none of the main characters actually use uh, much of a spoken uh, or written language. 
Anyway, Lord of the Flies is considered a classic uh, that fits in with the themes of today's episode. And I would also highly recommend William Golding's largely overlooked follow-up novel, The Inheritors, as being equally memorable and important. Next up and off the beaten path comes The Shamans of Prehistory from 1998 uh, by acclaimed South African archaeologist and anthropologist David Lewis Williams. And as the name implies, and as one might imagine, The Shamans of Prehistory is a well-researched and theoretical interpretation which ties our ancient cave ancestors and particularly ancient cave shamans uh, from 40,000 years ago to the topic of psychedelic drugs, spirit quests, ritual initiations, and the ancient cave art, uh, which are the earliest illustrations known to all of human history. And the shamans of prehistory paints the picture, no pun intended, about the interrelation of ancient cave art, uh, sacred spiritual journeys, into the most uh, innermost reaches of the human mind, and the shamans who have both instructed and guided in those ritual coming-of-age spirit quests for our ancient ancestors. You can vaguely, you can also place the works of uh, American ethnobotanist and mystic Terence McKenna within the same realm of themes and possibilities as you can in The Shamans of Prehistory by David Lewis Williams. Uh, David Lewis Williams is also the author of the books The Mind in the Cave and The Neolithic Mind. Uh, I highly recommend his works to anyone who is interested in ancient cave art, uh, prehistoric shamanism, and just the birth of art and mythology in general. And folks, I fear that this episode is already running over an hour. So I thank everybody out there for sticking with it if you have. Uh, it's, it's probably at an hour or damn near close to it. So I'm going to have to fast forward this a little bit with some brief mentions uh, that I didn't get a chance to go into uh, today's episode. Brave New World from 1932. Worlds in Collision from 1950. None Dare Call It a Conspiracy from 1972. Holy Blood Holy Grail, 1982. Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, 1986. The Gods of Eden, from 1993. Creature from Jekyll Island, 1994. Fingerprints of the Gods, 1995. The Occult Conspiracy, 1997. Secrets of the Tomb, from 2002. Likewise, there are a dozen books in the Mammoth Collection, including the Mammoth Book of Cover-Ups, the 100 Most Terrifying Conspiracies of All Time, the Mammoth Book of Conspiracies, the Mammoth Book of UFOs, the Mammoth Book of Unexplained Phenomena, and several others. I love the Mammoth books because there are at least a 100 of them at this point, and uh, they're usually very voluminous and uh, very reasonably priced. Uh, and I've got uh, at least a dozen mammoth, uh, different mammoth books of best new horror, as well as just various mammoth horror volumes in general. I get a kick out of all the different themes and topics that the mammoth books have covered over the years. So ladies and gentlemen, or the five people who might end up listening to this little podcast over the next five years, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, which is a little rundown of 22 plus books in 2022. And I'm positive we actually covered at least 50 books here today. And anybody who was making a drinking game of it today, 
uh, whenever I brought up another book, you are undoubtedly pretty drunk right about now. Have any feedback regarding some of the books that we covered here today? You feel like something was left out and deserved a mention? Uh, have some favorite books of your own that you think I should do my own research on. Please hit me up uh, through mentalpop.space. You can hit the microphone icon and leave me a 90-second voice message, or you can t- contact me there on an email form uh, that you can find on mentalpop.space. Or if, we, if we're friends on social media, uh, please hit me up. Say hello. Let me know what you thought about some of the choices of today's episode. If you want to be featured here as a guest on the Mental Pop Podcast, or you have a legitimate guest suggestion, I'd love to hear from you. Are you a musician or band? Uh, Would you like to be featured on this little podcast? Then, for the love of God and all that is holy, please get in touch. That's going to do it for today's episode. I hope you'll visit mentalpop.space. You can check out over 300 pieces of my original artwork uh, that's available for sale at www.geneticmemory.online. You can find me at Facebook, uh, MentalPop31, as well as our private Conspiracat group. So until next time, thank you for listening. My name is Matt. I'll see you again, uh, which should hopefully be in a couple weeks, but I've got no schedule for this damn thing. It's just going to come out when it comes out. It'll at least be once a month, though I'm going to try to make it bi-weekly. Maybe it'll be weekly sometimes. We'll just have to see how this goes. So until we meet again, don't be afraid. Think for yourself, raise your voice, and speak your mind. Peace profound.